Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stammel Major, and welcome to another Questions and Tangents episode. If you haven't heard one of these before, the concept is very simple. Uh, you think up basically leading questions, which then get me to talk for about an hour or so, which then provides entertainment to back up whatever it is that you're doing, walking the dog or sprinkling in the house or whatever it is. So um, to make this process happen, please send your questions to csmthemariner at gmail.com. And of course, for everyone who's with me over on Patreon, just private message me within Patreon. If you haven't had a look at that yet, Patreon, we're starting to develop that now, getting like getting smart about what it is. You know, in terms of being a business person in the world now, um, I'm 44 years old. The world has changed considerably in the last 10 years in the way that people that create content, you know, it used to be artists on the stage or musicians in the orchestral pit or up on the stage, whatever it was. It used to be people making things in sheds and studios and what have you, and then trying to find a way, an intermediary, a middleman that would then allow them to connect with their audience. But the way the world is now, there's things we can do online and Patreon is one of them. For those people who are content uh, producers, content creators of all sorts of different things from authors to people doing things with computers I don't even understand, building new things, Patreon gives you an opportunity to connect directly with the people that are consuming the content. And then for a couple of dollars a month, people feel that in a value for value model, they're kind of putting a little bit in. And the accepted deal is the fact that there's a lot of people throughout the world who may be interested in that particular area. And if you market yourself intelligently, $5 here, $5 there adds up into the kind of wage, which means that then you can, you know, devote your time to creating the stuff that people want to hear. If you want to hear more about sailing and delve into my experiences, we've got a great interview coming up. Uh, I'll be talking about that a little bit later on. Um, we've got all sorts of stuff here, but we have to have the time and space in our schedules to be able to do it. And those donations of uh, $5 are really, really helpful. So if you haven't checked that out already and you do listen to the podcast, uh, patreon.com forward slash the mariner. That's where you can hook up with me there and uh, and support the podcast. And if you haven't looked at Patreon before, there's all sorts of people doing all sorts of things and you can connect with them directly. And then we don't have to be giving, you know, 50% of what you're doing to, um, to, to some middleman who does nothing. So I'm very much enjoying this model. And if I can sit down and answer questions for you about sailing, I'm a very happy puppy. So let's, uh, let's jump in here. The first question, um, let me see. Oh, this is from Nick off Patreon. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Nick, uh, so uh, thank you to Katie who has put all this together today. I've actually got pieces of paper with things written on and questions and things highlighted. She's way more organized than me. And you can see, of course, why that would be necessary. But Nick says um, uh, he wants to know my thoughts on electronic log keeping versus pen and paper. Hmm. Okay, well, as soon as I think of this, um, let me see where I can go with this. Whenever I think of this, I think of um, the, the boats that I've sailed on. When I when I first went to sea, I went to sea in the like late 90s, something like that. And there was uh, a GPS was in, of course, but on the kind of boats that I was sailing on in the 20, 25 meter class, uh, the GPS unit was adjusted that it didn't do anything else. It's just an electronic thing. And it, it did GPS. Brilliant. OK, one of those big old Leica things, something like that. Um, and then as things started to step forward, you had like Raymarine, I remember, produced a, a, a unit, which was a log. It just did log. It was um, had a GPS on it, but then it also, you know, kind of just kept a track of where you were going and what was going on. And uh, it was of limited use. You could say it was covering bases, but it wasn't in any way providing you with useful information. Um, now we've got laptop systems and, and chart plotters, which will really you know, keep quite a lot of information on the screen, but I haven't seen anything yet that like compiles it in a way that I would feel, wow, I can really use that. Um, neither in a, in a, like a court of law or in a, in a practical situation. So I guess what we have to do is we have to examine what does the log do, and then we'll know if we can make it happen with, with electronic means, right? So um, if you're on a, a big commercial ship, there are a number of things which legally have to go into the log. Any instance at sea, of course, any radio communication with other ships at sea, uh, crew joining or leaving the, the vessel, um, any kind of accidents on board the boat, they all must legally go into the logbook. And the logbook then becomes a record of um, like how the ship is run. It kind of tells the personality of, of the ship. It, uh, through the little comments, through the um, coffee stains, through the whatever, it becomes like this authentic document that tells you 
how things are going down on the boat or on the ship rather and in the event of an accident um, the importance of the log is not to be underestimated if you're in court and you're in some situation where you have a uh, you know professional witness on the other side of the court from you something I spend my entire working life considering like okay if I was in court now and you had a master mariner on the other side of the court who's asking me a question how would they regard the actions I'm about to take here because I'm very aware as a yachty basically that uh, we um, we operate in a kind of weird gray area which is on the edge of what it is to be at sea in a commercial fashion you know if uh, most sea captains um, who deserved the the title captain they've spent 10 15 years at sea slowly working their way up doing their exams doing thousands of hours uh, watchkeeping when they look down at a little yacht and hear that the person that's running that thing is also called a captain I think there must be a part of them that their heart somewhat sinks you know but the main thing for us is um, if we are in court we are opposite somebody like that and so our ideas of what log keeping uh, are or is should I say what log keeping is um, may be very different from what that uh, that master mariner thinks it is um, their legal framework is completely different from what's going on the log on a, on a little boat particularly if you're not doing anything commercial if you're just out for your own pleasure the log book then is like it's kind of like a, a little journal you're keeping of like kind of where you went and, and how you did things and there's a feeling when you start the log you know I'm going to put the name of the vessel at the front and I'm going to put the owner's details and the call sign and the draft and the, and you really feel it's like that feeling when you get a new exercise book when you're at school you know and you underline the title really nicely and but at the end of the day the first page is completely irrelevant it's what happens thereafter it's the continuity and the consistency of what's in the log and it might be that you don't you know don't take observations every hour or you don't fill in the log every hour you might be doing it like once every four hours or something but if there's consistency in that it tells a story if every time you write the log even if it's like a handwritten entry you mark the visibility and the wind angle and the, that's fine as long as you're consistent in what you're doing um, for me, the log is something which is my uh, like last holdout um, for the question: What happens if all the power goes down? Now, you know, I have a huge amount of um, a huge amount of uh, respect and um, professional understanding of the depths of the skills of somebody who is astro navigating. I understand the uh, limitations and the technicalities of. GPS and when it's right and when it's not right and uh, how it can confuse you remember we did that um, podcast E is for estimated position error um, so I, I get it but the fact remains that there are that many simple ways now of locating your position that uh, in the event of all the power going down you're better to have a couple of Pelican cases with batteries and handheld GPS's or iPhones or something like that and a paper chart um, that that's your kind of uh, a more likely fallback position than getting out a sextant, getting out the nautical almanac, and just suddenly acing astronav. So I've said this before, and I you know I'm happy to kind of go into bat for that point of view. I think it's realistic, but the log, the log is the place where I start to agree with the traditionalists and all of the stuff I did with Clipper going around the world. I remember every leg we had to hand in our log books we we did the log every hour going around the world with that crew my Qingdao crew were absolutely brilliant at it I don't know where those logs are anymore actually I guess I'd, I would kind of like to to have them in a way but uh they they would tell the story of what happened you know my my log book is um it's developed over time but it's very much based in like commercial and uh it's designed to make the crew member tour the ship and or tour the vessel rather and look in the bilges and look in the forepeak and check the crew and check the rig and check the lazarette and it's designed to make them look all around the boat because at the end of the day you can row, run a boat on personality but that doesn't tend to be very useful when it comes to a lads a and you know the uh the soft and smelly is on the fast and whirly and you need to like understand how this problem has developed or what's been going on on the watch before you came up on deck or whatever it is you need to have something written down which is immutable it is unchangeable it is written and that is it um, the importance of the log is also shown sometimes when you, you find once in a while there are court cases maritime court cases where they've changed the log well they'll literally realize that the log is a damning 
in piece of evidence against them and they'll go back and they'll restart the log and just completely write everything out again every single detail in the log but then as it gets closer to the incident where you know they're not looking that uh, not looking that cool they will then start to shape the narrative into something else which makes them look um a little bit uh a little bit less guilty and that's where we see like the log can condemn the log can uh can can save you the log can give you information that um otherwise would have been kind of lost did, did he say that was you know 50 degrees apparent wind angle or did he say it was 60 degrees it's all right there in the log so i think the electronic stuff is useful like when you see the route going across the chart or the track rather going across the chart you can see like oh there we were like that's very very cool if you have a um, if you have a man overboard situation um, and you, no one saw them go, you just realize, man, there's, there's this person's not on this boat anymore. If you're on a big motor vessel, then you're going to do a Williamson turn where you put a certain amount of wheel on, you wait a certain amount of time, you put 30 degrees on the opposite way, then you come back to your original helm setting and then set off back in the direction, you do like a big uh, end of a figure of eight, you like kind of cross back over your track and go back up your route looking for the person that... Uh, may have fallen off the vessel five minutes ago or 50 minutes ago you don't know but if you've got the track on electronic uh, chart and you can turn around drive back over that and kind of allow a little bit for wind and what have you that little dot uh, that is that person in the middle of the ocean may be found may be found because you just drive back down that little black line or whatever color it is on your chart plotter and you can find them same with lost gear or something like that if you don't have that life gets more difficult than it is at the moment but the paper log, the paper um, notes, I don't know if that can go electronic. Like, you know, I love Star Trek and you think of uh, Captain's Log and Stardate, whatever it is. And that's kind of cool. But if the power goes down, it's going to be no use whatsoever. And you have to wait while it kind of plays through. And then you think, OK, well, you could just do it with, you know, electronic columns of things. Well, you certainly you certainly could, couldn't you? You could certainly just have like electronic columns on a computer and then you click in them. Yes, I went and checked the lazarette. Yes, I went and checked the rig. But that feels that feels like it'd be difficult to like say to someone like call them to task like did you click this because I think you made that up and now that thing broke or fell or flooded or whatever it is I think that um, when it's paper and it's got a signature at the end of it that still has gravitas with it so I would say that the paper log or a book log you know proper written log is here to stay I think if you're just kind of writing a journal of like where you went then you may as well write it on the computer then you can take it home with you right you could scan it um i think that having a book i always use the adlard coles book with the uh foreword by sir robin knox johnson but then i massively alter the way it uh it, it's kind of laid out inside the book and um i think my i try to remember now there's like 20 columns that have to be filled out in my log every hour but you get really quick at them and you get quick at knowing where everything is on the chart table okay there's the apparent wind there's the heading there's the course there's the speed and then invariably because we're in a sail training situation people say well why do i have to write the speed over the ground and the speed why do i have to write the heading and the uh, course over the ground and you start to explain what these interrelationships between these pieces of information are and suddenly it comes to life because they're writing it with their own hands right so i think as um as a document which uh really assist with watch keeping like yes every hour we checked to make sure everybody's on the boat every hour we made sure the lazarette wasn't flooded every hour we made sure the backstays were secure that cannot be underestimated now before i end up sounding like i'm um you know kind of uh, doing everything absolutely perfectly all the time when i sail solo it's about once every four hours i don't i don't do it every hour there's just things aren't changing in in, in such a way and i don't have any responsibility for anybody else on the boat and my boat is so little and small at 60 feet compared to what else is thundering around the Atlantic that if I crash into somebody else, it's not really going to be like, <laughs> they're not going to be looking to like apportion blame to me by going through my logbook, aren't they? Clearly, I'm a solo sailor. Clearly, watch keepings of, of you know, keeping good lookout is difficult in that scenario. So it's always going to be on me. That's the responsibility I take. And that's uh, the, the fatalistic kind of uh, wall I have to climb over every time I go out sailing. But um when I when you're on with a crew, I think um, you know people would say oh, I don't need to write in the log. I'm keeping an eye, keeping an eye on everything. Well, I don't know. I guess not enough stuff's ever gone wrong for you. You don't realize how many things can go wrong um, till you get to where I am, where you write a list of all the things that can go wrong, and then get people to check they're not going wrong every every hour. So anyway, I hope that's. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I think in there somehow is my answer. It is called questions and tangents, so what to expect. Um, Nick, I think uh, keeping a log is very good. And I think that when you get into your dotage and you're looking across your dusty shelves at, you know, memories of your life, it's going to be a lot better to, um, to have a nice book there you can open and show your grandchildren than like a USB stick, you know, of this is where I went. Hope that's helpful. <laughs> uh, let's go on here. So uh, Bruce, Bruce Williams. Hello, Bruce. Uh, often uh, introduce uh, Bruce into this. He's always writing me questions on Patreon. Been a very solid supporter. And uh, along with the rest of the people on Patreon, totally saved my ass during, uh, during COVID. Um, of course, a time when we couldn't go sailing at all. So he says, oh, this is, I remember this one. I remember receiving this one. Bruce's question. Now, I should also say that we, we're doing a, a T-shirt giveaway over on uh, Patreon. So don't think that these people are just like writing me. <laughs> oh, I just write him another question. As Bruce says, um, he's, he's very interested in a T-shirt. So he's, he's interested in, uh, you know, what's the best question he can formulate? To keep me talking for 25 minutes and then he gets a T-shirt as well. But let's get into it. He says, um, if you could own or sail one boat or ship, what would it be? If you could own or sail one boat or ship, what would it be? And I do remember that the um, extended version of it that was uh, not worrying about price, not worrying about crew, not worrying about reality. <laughs> so everybody, every sailor, just oh, just take a second. What would you have if you could have anything? Oh, my goodness. I used to spend all my time um, on, what was it called? YBW.com, the, the um, brokerage thing on there, because so many brokerages around the world were putting their offerings onto YBW that you then had this like one place you could go to and look at boats all over the world. And I was sitting in England with like a hundred pounds to my name or something. And just this big dream, you know, I'd read, um, I don't know, cruising under sail or something. I got these exact ideas about what I wanted and I would go through and then you go to, uh, what was it? Advanced search, advanced search. I can have uh, alloy, alloy boat. And I've got 50,000, well, 50,000, I haven't got 50,000. You can always knock people down and boats never sell for their asking price. So really, I should probably be looking at 70,000 and then I'll knock them. It's all going on totally inside my head. But it, it, it whiles away hours and hours and you learn loads about like what's in the marketplace and what equipment there is. And then you go, oh, I don't know what this thing is that they've listed here. And it's either super old or super new. It's a, a win or a fail or whatever it is. Um, there's there's a, a part of me that is into really rugged boats, really rugged. I drove a um, Challenge 67 in Hong Kong and we weren't racing or pushing those boats anywhere near as hard as they were pushed by the skippers and crews in the actual Challenge race that uh, Shea Barith used to run. But um, there was some times going out from Hong Kong towards Taiwan where it was rough, like northeast monsoon, it's 45, 50 knots. And you'd uh, the way the backstays come down those, they're check stays, it has a, a solid backstay but it has check stays as well. And it comes down onto the side deck and obviously the windward one is on, the leeward one's off. And it would go through a turning block and then go up to the winch. And there was an opportunity then to stand. Don't tell me it's the dangerous triangle. Like I get it, but it's 27 mil uh, dyneema. It isn't about to break. Um, I'd stand on the backstay where it went through the turning block and then went up to the winch. You could stand on that bit and hold on to the backstay and um, you could feel the vibrations of the rig and you could feel the you know when the bow crashes into the surf and you'd be kind of balancing there and I'm always barefoot when I'm on a boat and kind of grabbing hold of the rope and so this is this is like feeling sailing like right through the seat of your pants as uh, buddy melgers would say right you got to feel it through the seat of your pants and uh, standing on the backstay on one of those boats they're like 40 tons and it's just hammering its way through the south china sea uh, that gave me a great love for really solid boats that you can really, really trust. So there's something in there. I remember spending a lot of time on YBW looking at steel boats um, and, and aluminum boats. But uh, the problem with the steel boats is always, of course, the fact that it may be quite rusty. You can buy some cheap steel boats. I think there's a 40-footer here in um, Nova Scotia, um, like a kind of Chinese junk-rigged 40-footer. I think it's like on for five or 10,000. Bring your own welder, you know? But the possibility, it's there, isn't it? You could just get it and then you do all the work to it and it'd come out and it'd be beautiful. I guess what happened in between then and now <laughs> is a couple of my dreams came true. You know, I, I have had the opportunity to, to race very rugged boats around the world. I drove the Challenge 67. I drove all sorts of boats, TP-52s and Volvo 65s and Volvo 70s and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I guess, where's my thoughts now? Okay, one of the other boats that I would have loved again from that period of time is a wooden boat okay so 
There's some people for whom their ears have pricked up at the thought that you know a wooden boat might be the one, and there's other people whose ears are lying flat now against <laughs> against their skull, and they don't want to hear any more chit chat about wooden boats. What do they say? If um if God had intended us to make boats out of fiberglass, he would have made fiberglass trees. Okay, I get it. Wooden boats, oh, they're, they're natural. They're shaped by thousands of years of development of human beings looking at this problem and solving this problem, solving this problem, solving this problem. Um, traditional wooden boats, you know, with a beautiful yard and your jack topsails and uh, all these big arching areas of canvas and uh, brass. And oh my goodness me, I could get myself quite excited thinking about this. And then I had the opportunity to drive the 100 and what was she, 1904, so what's she now, 118 years old. 105 foot, um, she's called Mary Maid, and she was one of the big class yachts. So the big class yachts were things like the um, Britannia that was owned by the king and, and um, Thomas Lipton's boats. And that boat, uh, Mary Maid, was actually built for the um, for the Lipton Cup in the, in the UK in 1904 and won it. Um, but the big class yachts uh, went through a change. They went from gaff rigged to Marconi rigged, to the kind of rigs that we see now. And Mary Maid was the first boat ever to put a Marconi rig up, but it broke. So she went back to a gaff rig, but others looked across and went, hmm, that's a good idea. And the, that was the beginning of the J-class. They were big class yachts that then had Marconi rigs put on. That's where your Valshidas and your Shamrocks and all those guys come from. And then Super J's are the big ones like Lionheart and Rainbow and stuff. So... Um, I got the opportunity to drive this boat, which I, you know, is just beautiful. And it had been made into a private yacht since then with accommodation and huge, beautiful, like studded, um, um, uh, what are they called? Chesterfield sofas inside. And, and I got to say, Jesus, <laughs> varnishing. Oh my God. And things that want to eat the boat and things that want to rust all the brass off and the ropes have to be kept clean otherwise all those lovely beige ropes all start to look really messy from anything that might be on your hands or anything if you you know painting anything or the varnish uh, the rigors varnish goes on them and it just ended up being this this 110 percent of your time being spent just in the upkeep of it and that's when i realized i'm i'm there's just part of me is just not built to do that my dad had a boat when i was young called hunyani um it's about 36 foot motor sailor with a laugh cabin and kind of um i guess a pilot house or something it's called and uh he was forever fixing that thing he's forever replacing bits of wood on it we were in the uk in the south of the uk it's relatively warm for the uk got mild water and um toreador and gribble and holy mackerel so <clears throat> I, I think what i do now is i look across at those boats and i say god that's a beautiful boat and you can keep it. It's kind of like being a grandparent. I'm like a sailing grandparent. I, it's great. I love your baby. It's fantastic. Uh, you keep it. You know, I'll, I'll visit. And that's where I'm at with wooden boats. So if I was looking for the boat that was like my boat, then I guess it would be, um, I, I don't think it'd be a wooden one. <laughs> Although there's still a part of me. It would be very interesting doing some like super interesting historical uh you know voyages on traditional boats where you get on you do the thing and then you get back off i just don't want to own one of those boats long term so okay so so steel's out all right uh wood is out <laughs> what else we got carbon fiber uh carbon fiber boats there's a lot of very fast carbon fiber boats uh, you know i've i've had the opportunity in the last seven years to buy volvo 70s um and they are super powerful boats they're fast boats you know, these boats can do Many hundreds, I think, what's the record for a Volvo 70? Like 700 miles, ABN AMRO 1, I think. I can't remember exactly, but it's over 700 miles in a day. This is an incredible piece of equipment. The problem is, if you hit anything, they're very delicate. And you could literally bankrupt yourself in one small instant. Just drive over something at sea and then, oh, the daggerboard's gone and the rudder's gone. That's okay, I'll just be 60 grand. Like, you need to you need to be on top of that. And uh I guess that that brings us to what's left. What can we make this dream boat out of? Ferrous cement. I did have a lot of it. <laughs> I did have a lot of love for those Samson ferrous cement catches. Ferrous cement, when it's done right, is brilliant. If you just want to move slowly from place to place, and you want to enjoy your time, and you want to, um, you know, enjoy the, the 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 process of of being in motion, then they're quiet. They're well insulated. They're strong. They're the problem is, of course, that so many ferrous cement boats were built by amateurs following, you know, following the plans, following the guidelines. But it, it's all starting to come apart now. So my looking at 
you know, 1970s ferro cement boats. When I was last looking at those, like the early 2000s, uh, they're 20 years older now. That's a 50-year-old boat. Like, eh, I'm not sure I want the boat that's made out of metal things and, and concrete things and lives in water. So then it gets down to Kevlar. <laughs> I do like Kevlar boats. You might have noticed I've got a couple of Kevlar boats. Um, the Maxi is Kevlar and uh, and uh, Challenger, the, the Whitbread 60 is Kevlar. It's very strong. It's very light. It's um, it kind of looks a bit like old man pee when you're inside the boat all the time. It's like it's because it's just yellow. Back in the day, those kind of yellow colors, like the '90s, that was that was the color of success. As carbon fiber is cool now, and other things, you know, literally buying bits of carbon fiber to add to your car just to prove how you know add horsepower by adding carbon fiber to the interior. Um, Kevlar was like that. There were Kevlar sails, those yellow Kevlar sails from the 90s as well, which are indestructible. Um, uh, I, I've still got some of those now and they're still going. And uh, and the boats were yellow inside and looked good. The problem is the epoxy's gone even more yellow over the years. So now you go into one of those boats. Remember when we owned Charger, which was the old Yamaha? Inside there, it was just a bit a bit sad, like, like a gang of hobos had used it as a latrine. It always made me sad. We repainted the inside white and boof, it all came back nice again. So... Kevlar's got that about it, but the 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 problem with Kevlar is that uh, water is a plasticizer for for Kevlar. That's the issue. If the water gets through whatever's your protective skin on the outside of it, paint, uh, paint wrap, uh, you know, epoxy layer, gel coat, whatever it is. If the water gets through that and gets to the Kevlar, you got to be very very careful because it can start softening the Kevlar Kevlar off. So um, older Kevlar boats, you need to have them well surveyed and. Um, the ultrasonics done on them to make sure what's going on and uh, a uh, radiant heat source on the outside of the hull and take um, uh, thermodynamic thermo uh, images on the inside to see like propagation of, uh, of uh, heat through the boat and you can tell where the water is like it's complex we've had it done on uh, challenger before and it's uh, it's complex it's uh, uh, very expensive and it's very revealing of the fact that most kevlar boats were actually only ever built for like one-offs the whitbread 60s they were designed to go around the world once how do i know this um, I remember contacting FAR to ask them how you place the how you replace the rudder bearing on the boat that was Yamaha, which we called Charger. And uh, the the answer came back: you probably can't replace it. Um, it was never intended to be replaced. Like, sorry, what? It's like these boats are only intended to be operational really for a year to race around the world and win, as as Yamaha did, and uh, they're not intended for anything else. So when you're then like you know 25 years on <laughs> it's it's outside the window that it was built for so you have to be very cautious with it so not doing very well here am i um well it leaves one doesn't it it leaves one now i'm going to go down a dark path here i'm going to go down i'm going to reveal to you one of my deep dark secrets but um <clears throat> you can't tell anybody else unless you get them to you know subscribe on patreon but um my my <laughs> my dream boat dare i even say this is a 45 foot lagoon <laughs> okay so why would i pick that i worked in hong kong for a company called simpson marine and we commissioned lagoons and benetos and cmbs and uh what else do we have there camper nickels yeah and um oh and azimuth the big power boats yeah so basically what happened is that that brokerage had been one of the um gateway brokerages for the chinese market so if the the Chinese people who were developing a, you know, a desire to consume luxury goods wanted a motorboat, then they were getting an azimuth. And if they wanted what they called a square boat, which would be for a lot more like um, partying with uh, with uh, guests, partying with uh, um, people from their company, they'd get a square boat that's a catamaran, okay? And it would be a lagoon. And if they wanted like a real sailor's boat, and I'm doing air bunnies here, then they'd get a Beneteau. So uh, we commissioned a lot of them. Um, there was a guy I worked with, Matt. Hey, Matt, if you're listening to this ever. Um, he and I commissioned a lot of lagoons and a lot of Benetos. And I learned that um, I learned that there's something to be said for separating your dream boat from um, everyday existence. <clears throat> I guess that's the point. Uh, you know, what do you want to do on a boat? Uh, I don't want to go less than 10 knots. I'm sorry, like I put it out there. And that sounds bad to some people. It sounds like I'm being a sailing snob. I'm really not because I've met people who work on 100 foot trimarans and they don't want to go less than 20 knots. So my 10 knots is pretty paltry, but 10 knots you can get from A to B pretty damn quickly. It's it's good. It's you know, things are moving along, right? Um, I don't want a boat to be like super 
super slow in all conditions and it, you know it's really great when it's uh when it's blowing like those um challenge 67s the you know yeah if you've got 35 knots that's the boat to be on but if you've got 13 knots then you're not moving catamarans tend to tend to move quite nicely um everything about the lagoons is completely standard so if you need a new mainsail track or if you need a new piece of uh, rigging or if you need a new stack pack or if you need a new rudder bearing everybody knows what they are it's not complex right so owning it becomes quite easy uh, on my dream <laughs> lagoon i want um no teak <laughs> maybe it, okay teak in the cockpit oh, okay i'll let teak in the cockpit but i'm not having teak anywhere else i don't want to look after it i don't want to look after it I just want those nice non-slip uh floors um the ones i'm thinking of i know probably there's a, a newer model of lagoon since i was last around them like 10 years ago but um they've got a nice little well at the front and they've got a generator in there and the generator's away from like where you're entertaining and uh you've got the davits at the back there's there's one other catamaran which i put into this which is the uh sea wind the sea wind now remember is it 1300 i think it's 1300 13 meters long it has the most amazing uh tri-fold doors you can open one door to go into the salon it's like a normal sized door you can open two of them and it's like a double door or you can fold all the doors together and then lift them up into the hard cover that's over the um the large open area at the back and uh you've got this like massive entertaining space this walking around space like if you're alongside a dock in the caribbean enjoying life and you're doing it on a little monohull and you're scooching past each other every day i think big spaces would feel pretty positive you know and uh, and they'll pick up and and sail at ten knots quite merrily, and, and a lot more than that. So you can drive them up on a beach and dry them dry them out if you want to do that. You can maintain them pretty easily. The so <laughs> I feel like I've I feel like I've been at like AA or something and admitted finally I drink too much. Yes, I just want a fiberglass standard forty five foot lagoon. You know, and let's not forget, of course, that new that's like well over half a million dollars, half a million dollars, half a million euros. So. Um, it's not a realistic uh, aim, but um, I feel like catamarans are a good thing. You know, sitting on the front net of a catamaran with the um, remote for the autopilot and just sailing it along in nice conditions. Um, there's there's not much that's better than that. And I, well, see, now I'm thinking of another boat. <laughs> now I'm thinking about dragonfly. And I, I'll say this, dragonflies, those little trimarans, are they t- like 27 foot or something, 20, 20 some odd foot? They fold up and go on a trailer. And yet I can remember for certain going to a Caribbean 600, which is a 600 mile race all around the Caribbean. And I was going through the start line in uh, a Volvo 60. And I guess the multi-hulls would have started behind us. Yeah, whatever was going on, I can remember looking across and there's a 27 foot dragonfly, which could have well arrived on a trailer. Not that I think it did in Antigua, but it could have easily done if it was you know anywhere in the US or Europe. And it was going at the same speed that the Volvo 60 was. The Volvo 60's got a 100-foot mast. It's got a 3.5-meter draft. It's got uh, 7 tons of lead on the bomb. It's being crewed by 14 people, two of which have to be absolute professionals. The spinnaker's the size of, you know, tennis courts. And this thing is doing the same speed, and it was there with us at the finish. We didn't see it for the whole thing, but it was there for us at the finish. It was that damn fast on the on the reach down from the top there at St. Martin right down to the bomb at um, uh, Guadeloupe. And it was so easy for it to be driven through the light airs around Guadeloupe that even the advantage we had going to Wynwood was gone by the time the race came through. And I thought, <laughs> that's that's a pretty cool little boat. So my my love is going to be, if it's being trailered, it's gonna, I'm going to go with Dragonfly. If I'm going to live on it in the marina, then it's going to be, um, it's going to be a, a catamaran. It's going to be a lagoon. And then, well, I'm just going to try and keep you happy in one way because I know a lot of people will not be happy with my answer of a lagoon. I will tell you this, there's one other boat and I nearly got it this summer. I was that excited about it, Longobarda. Longobarda is a maxi that was built in 1989. And unfortunately we went over to Portugal to buy that boat. And with one thing or another, that deal just couldn't go through. It couldn't go through in the amount of time we had available. And remember it was during COVID, we had all these crew coming and going. And uh, I got to the point where I did like a video of on it. It's on the YouTube channel, uh, full tour of Longobarda. That boat is fantastic. Fantastic. And we went and bought um, Weddell, which we now called Osprey. And it's a fantastic boat as well. It's a brilliant boat. In fact, it's a more modern boat. And uh, it's got a beautiful carbon rig and all this kind of stuff. And I and I love this boat. And we're going to use it a lot. But if you're talking about like what I would like, Longobarda had a bow thruster. Like I get emotional just thinking about it now. It had a bow thruster. Like I've spent 20 years teaching people how to park 
without a bow thruster. Like I could park anything in any spot, given you know some crew to help me do it. But it had a bow thruster and it had an anchor windlass. You know, I've crossed the Atlantic however many times. We say like thirty times. I've never crossed it with a boat that's got an anchor on the on the front, like permanently rigged. All this stuff is race boats. It's all down inside the boat. And that little part of me that was loving looking through YBW and wanted to have a boat that could do anything, go anywhere. Um, it's always kind of had to live in a box because I'm on a boat that, yeah, there's there's no um, there's no cleats because it's a race boat. There's no, um, you know, like nice furniture down below. I remember taking my daughter Bella on uh, on <laughs> on a friend's boat, and the only boats she'd ever been on were uh, the race boats that Spar owns. And she, we went on my friend Keith's boat, and she went below and said, oh, "There's wood." And there's cushions. And I thought, jeepers, like, I'm not doing this right. As a dad, I'm definitely not doing this right. So um, I think that if it's monohull, here we go, we can do it. If it's monohull, it'd be longer body. It's 80 foot long. I get it. But very easily handled and uh, and, a, and a beautiful boat, beautiful accommodation. Fantastic. But maybe it's in the future for me somehow. And swap swap Osprey for, for that boat. There you go. That's a deal for the owner if he wants to do that. Um, and then uh, if it's a, a monohull, like if I'm going to live on it, you know, it's no good living on Longobarda, right? It's it's got a massive draft and what have you. You can live on a catamaran out on a mooring in the in the Caribbean. That'd be fantastic. Um, and if I had to trailer it and just kind of live with it, and, and money was not free, and crew were actually something you had to organise and pay, I think I'd just get a Dragonfly, Dragonfly twenty seven. So, <laughs> there you go, Bruce. There's twenty minutes on what boats uh, I want, and you've probably got yourself a t shirt there. I think we're going to be giving a few t shirts out on Patreon. Actually, I've got a load of t shirts left over from the uh, the Fastnet in. What was 20, I can't remember when the last one was. Was it 2018, 2019? You remember like back in the old days when things were normal and we had like a clue what was going on and sailing events happened on a yearly or bi-yearly or whatever it was basis. Um, we made all these t-shirts up and uh, they haven't been used for two years. So we're making new t-shirts for new events and uh, the old t-shirts are going away. So if you want one of those, go over to Patreon and you can send me a question. But anyway, thank you very much for, uh, for, for Bruce um, for your question there. Let's go on here. Um, Camilla Ransom. Camilla Ransom wrote, she is doing the Atlantic Voyager with us this uh, this autumn. The Atlantic Voyager is going from Iceland to uh, Newfoundland. So it's uh, 1,650 nautical miles. It's going to be 11 days at sea or, you know, we'll be tootling around. I think I sent out a newsletter um, only a little while ago, actually. Uh, yeah, a couple of days ago, um, talking about the fact that we are doing a lot more cruising now with Spartan. The, the race thing for me it's getting that complicated, and we just had a massive hit recently with um, the uh, the conflict in Ukraine has affected us because the uh, insurance company that we were dealing with was based in Poland, and clearly whoever they were getting doing their underwriting, we just got a note that said uh, your your policy is suspended, so we just had to cancel some events, which is pretty sad. Pretty sad for the crew that are coming on board, who I know are looking forward to that. Pretty sad for me because we just got through two years of COVID, and we're looking forward to getting going again, but. Uh, the whole race thing is getting so complex that uh, I, I, for one, am um, I'm going to do big events, and uh, we're going to chat about that a little bit later on. The Nova race, I'm going to do big events, and I'm going to steer clear of doing too many more race events. And I've done most of them anyway, which is, you know, for me personally, I am still going out and doing the sailing. I don't want to just keep going round and round and round the Caribbean 600 track. I've done it like seven times. So I clearly I'm not going to win it, as I would have won it. Right? <laughs> the people that are racing against are obviously much better than me and faster boats and crew that have had more than three days training so I'm not ever in it for the win I'm in it for the being in it well now I've I've been in it right so now I want to go and do I want to go and do cruising I'm going to do cruising I'm going to have to change the name of the company to Spartan Ocean Cruising which um <laughs> talking of Spartan Ocean Cruising I'm just coming up to the end of um Vagabonding Under Sail which is the book I'm reading over on uh, Rare Nautical Reads at the moment the other podcast and that's picking up really nicely hey like loads of people hundreds of people downloading those i'm really happy to be able to bring those books to people but uh the two books i've read so far desperate voyage and um vagabonding under sale it's all set around like the 1940s and both of the uh authors have got no money whatsoever so that's spartan ocean cruising you know where they're eating corn corn beef and potato for uh you know like <laughs> for like weeks and weeks on end and thinking that they're lucky so um i think that's that's kind of got into it camilla yes we are doing the atlantic voyager it's no problem at all we have already got uh, some new insurance worked out but interestingly we're gonna have to change uh the country that the boats are registered in to be able to get new insurance the boats were registered 
in uh, in Europe before, and we're going to be changing that and going for a new uh, insurance company based in North America. And I think that's going to suit the way that we're going with this a lot more. So uh, watch watch this space. I'll be talking about it on the podcast, of course, and uh, go over to SpartanOceanRacing.com and have a see what's going on. I think the trips this summer they're starting to fill up now. Um, it, you know, places uh, we've got bigger boats this uh, this year. We've got more boats, but still they're very popular. If you want to go sailing, now's the time to get involved. So I hope that answers your question there, Camilla. Looking forward to seeing you. Uh, where will we meet you? Uh, you'll be in Iceland, won't you? And we'll be sailing to Newfoundland together. That sounds... I'm kind of looking forward to that. I'm kind of looking forward to the fact that we're doing much more stuff, which is voyaging and seamanship, because the racing, you can understand from my point of view, you invite you know, 10, 12 new people onto the boat and then you've got three days to teach them how to operate a 60-foot race boat and do a convincing job of going around a race course. That's a very different uh, couple of weeks at work than going and voyaging and seeing new places and, and enjoying yourself. And, uh, oh, you know what? That that reminds me of something. I was going to share this with you. Uh, hang on. So look under the desk. Okay. All right. Sure. Cool. So I have in front of me um, a copy of Vagabonding Under Sail by William Creelock, which I've been reading on the other podcast. And uh, I just finished it today. And I was reading the, I'm actually reading the appendix and the, um, and the epilogue, uh, which you'd think was extraordinarily boring, but there was some real gems in it, and I, I wanted to share one with you. It's it's towards the back, and the section is called Outward Bound. Not the not the company that I worked for, but just the concept of that you are outward bound, that you're out to leave the dock in a boat. Um, he writes, Other people's mistakes are carelessness. Our own are experience, it has been said, by which token we of content, that's the name of their boat, had the opportunity to learn a vast amount. It would be impudence for us to offer advice on seamanship, for every month showed us how much we still had to learn. But there were a number of little points which cropped up during the years, and we can at least pass on a little of what we learned. The best advice one could give to anyone who really intends to roam under sail is simply, go, get out, get out before the words next year have crept into your planning, before you have lost your crew or your money, if any, before you fall in love with a damsel or out of love with your dream. The most difficult decision is the first, to leave your job and your home. Once you are underway with companions you can trust to stay with you, the battle is won. Only one thing is necessary to the fulfillment of your dream, and that is a boat. Beyond that, nothing, not money nor experience, for both, though nice to have, can be acquired as you go. I thought that was pretty nice. He's, uh, it was a real surprise to me, this one. That other podcast is called Rare Nautical Reads. And the idea was that um, this library from Rudolf Hassey that was uh, donated to me, um, you know, getting these books out and reading them. We're having the devil's own job finding the people that own the copyright on them. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep uh, keep working at that um, for the ones that we've got coming up. But uh, I didn't know who William Creelock was. William Creelock ended up being a yacht designer. did all sorts of cool boats. I was looking him up on Wikipedia. So that inspired me to think that one of the other things that we could do um, with this podcast is highlight uh, particular sailors. And uh, to that end, the next book I'm going to be reading, uh, which I'm just going to be starting on myself uh, in the next couple of days, although it will come out in like a week's time, um, is by Alan Colas, the French sailor who was unfortunately lost during the route to Rome in 1978. He wrote a book in 1973 called Around the World Alone. So I'm just about to get into that one next. And uh, it's fantastic for me because like any of you, I'm really interested to hear stories from you know famous or, or not so famous sailors, even infamous sailors, and then try and absorb information from them. But um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing that. But uh, that idea of them highlighting this like Yves Parlier's story of him re-stepping that mast in the Vendée Globe, there's you know, I read Slocum's book, but who was Slocum? There's lots to be learned about him. Um, if you've got any suggestions for famous sailors uh, that you'd like to hear more about, send me your ideas at csmthemariner at gmail.com. Or, of course, if you're a member over on Patreon, just uh, stick it in the message to me and I'll, I'll read it there. We can chat back some forwards. Um, another question here, quick one from Bjorn Lindgren. Hey, Bjorn, uh, he's written to me a few times, listener of the podcast and watcher of the YouTube channel. Um, you work in commercial shipping, do you not, Bjorn? I'm pretty sure you do. Um, he says he's reading on the net that we are planning to come to Norway. Absolutely, yeah. We're doing an event uh, in August, the English Channel Pilot, which goes from cows in the UK up to Stavanger in Norway. And then we leave from Norway to go to the Faroe Islands and Iceland uh, on the Faroe Islands Explorer. So, yeah, we are coming to see it. So I'm be hoping that we can we can ho hook up with you. I know if you're in commercial 
commercial shipping, you're probably around Stavanger, you're not. So uh, send me another message, Bjorn, and uh, tell me what's going on, and we'll we'll definitely hook up uh, there. That would be great. Who else have we got here? Last one before we go. Uh-huh-huh. Okay. Uh, Jason Finley. Hey, Jason. He's over on Patreon as well. He says, thanks so much for the online seamanship videos. The quality was fantastic. Uh, will there be more and when? My son and I enjoy watching them together. He is 14. Um, you know, I'm really glad to hear that. I'm, I'm very lucky that a lot of people write to me and say that they're sharing the content uh, with children. It's one of the reasons that I avoid swearing as much as I possibly can. Um, what did I read the other day? Sailors don't swear. It's technical jargon or something. I don't <laughs> my, my hope is that the, the things that we're doing here, both on YouTube and the podcast and all the rest of it, does inspire young people to go sailing. I think there's a huge amount in there for them, skills development, character development. And uh, so I'm, I'm really glad that uh, he's getting to uh, to see those as well. The seamanship videos, we do have the um, the syllabus for that. I'm looking across the room at it here and it's uh, it's got a lot of things written on it. The winter slows us down with those because everything is shot on the boat and the batteries and the cameras and everything start getting into a bit of a pickle. We did try this winter, but with lenses um, lenses smoking up and uh, batteries dying, it was just a mess. But temperatures are now above zero here in Nova Scotia. The ice has gone from the bay. Yeah, I can stop worrying every night. And so we'll be getting back into that. So we've got things about um, knots and modern ropes and uh, safety on deck. And uh, what else we got in there? mainsail, jib, flaking jibs, roller furling jibs, what else? There's all sorts of things going on in there. The stuff that we're going to be getting into next is probably a lot more to do with um, navigation and uh, kind of take a, a delve into some of the electronics on the boat. And uh, as we get into the spring now, we'll be getting out onto the water, sailing the boat and uh, starting to see these things in action. A lot of what we've been doing has been at the at the mooring because it was very difficult to get crew on board during covid because what's everyone going to do like come on board in masks hey if 10 people could just all come together here and for no reason at all all expose themselves to each other it just whilst you know i've got my own views on what's going on with that other people have got theirs and that's okay and that's not prom at all but it meant that it was difficult to bring it together so more seamanship videos coming and more of it at sea very soon I've also challenged myself to get out on the water and do some more of the blogging solo, take uh, Falcon out, and uh, people always enjoy that. You know, it's a bit of a funny thing when you're doing a lot of sailing content. Um, you can imagine me starting this podcast in like February, or March, or whatever it was, of 2020. Um, like, hey, we can we can film everything that we're doing on the boats and talk about it, and then two years of <laughs> two years of like not going sailing, basically. But that's that's all done now, pretty much. Uh, so yeah, more more videos, more seamanship videos coming soon. And uh, that's, of course, over on Patreon. The $20 a month gets you access to those. And we get uh, about 45 minutes to an hour every month professionally produced and uh, and adding together in the end to be a proper online seamanship syllabus. So, OK, well, let's get into the last question here. And I'm going to kind of skirt around the edge of it. It's from, uh, am I going to get this name right, this name right now? Like, uh, help me out if I'm not doing Jeroen van der Velden. That sounds pretty Dutch to me. Uh, if it's uh, that or Goedemiddag if uh, there I did live in Holland for a while doesn't help me pronouncing names it seems but I can say good morning good afternoon um, Jerome asks uh, I was wondering if you could make a podcast regarding sailing the southern ocean in a much slower boat like in the Golden Gobe race I mean what kind of preparation and tactics would you practice or is there any advice uh, if you should face a challenge like that um, what I'll do is I'll uh, I'll turn that into something for you, Jean. Um We've got a good contact with Don McIntyre, who's the guy that organized the Golden Globe race. And I have got a uh, great desire to speak to the person who won the Golden Globe race, which is um, Jean-Luc Vandenheed, who's a hero of mine, the guy that uh, has the record for sailing west around the world. So I've already talked to Don about the possibility of doing an interview with him. He can talk about the Ocean Globe race and uh, and we can also maybe see if we can get a connection with um, Jean-Luc Vandenheed and, and talk to him. I would be very excited about that. And I think between those two people, they can answer your question much better than I can. My knowledge on how to get through the Southern Ocean is uh, speed is your friend and chafe is the enemy. That was given to me by Brad Van Loo in Cape Town before I set off in my Open 60 into the Southern Ocean, and I think it holds pretty true. But if you're on a boat that has different characteristics and is going to be making its way at sub-10 knots, then I think that those who really know how to do that are the best ones to talk to. So um, 
I will talk to Katie, who's doing all the organizing behind what's going on here at the Mariner at the moment, and she will reach out to Don and we'll organize that uh, interview. What I can tell you is that we've got uh, an interesting interview coming up. We were contacted recently by a chap called uh, Steve Ladd, well, actually, his publicist, and uh, Steve Ladd uh, has got a, a, a pretty amazing story to tell. Uh, I'll read you the, the title of the email. It says, uh, I spent three years in a 12-foot boat. Interested in an interview? <laughs> like, okay, well, that's about the same size as my dinghy. So, uh, yeah, I'm very, very interested. So uh, we're going to organize that uh, interview. I was kind of advised when I started this podcast not to do too many interviews because, of course, you've got Andy Shell over on uh, On The Wind podcast does some amazing interviews. And if you want to hear, you know, really great uh uh, people from within sailing come and tell their story that uh, that's the podcast I listen to but uh, I think you know sp- spattering a few in there not not a problem and uh, I'm very interested to to hear how it goes down in a 12-foot boat uh, I remember reading a book called 500 days around the world with a guy uh, what was the name of his boat Arcroc Australis yeah and uh, I <laughs> It's it's all a double dutch to me because I uh, obviously if I step on a boat and it moves it's too small for me. I came down to sixty foot from like a hundred and fifty foot tall ships when I started out. So the mere concept of being on a twelve foot boat in the middle of the ocean is totally alien to me. So I will um, I will find out from Steve exactly how that happens, and I'm sure he's got some very useful information to add about how to be in a slower boat and uh, making your way downwind. So we'll come back to you with that, Jerome. Uh, but um, that's about it for today. We've got some more questions here, which I will put into the uh, questions and tangents next week. If you want yours to be there, send them to csmthemariner at gmail.com. Or if you're already over on Patreon with us, um, then you can easily, of course, just direct message me there. And of course, I'm, uh, I'm answering questions for people on all sorts of things on Patreon quite regularly now. With uh, It seems that there's quite a few patrons have worked out that um, if they're able to direct message me they can like literally message me from the boat like hey i'm on the boat should i buy this or that like is this okay or should it be bent the other way like suddenly lots of bits of uh, consultancy which i'm completely happy to do as long as it doesn't get too crazy but um within that if you have actual questions that you want to have answered then chuck them in and we'll get it going so that's it and as always on this podcast i say to you wherever you are and whatever you're doing i hope that you are safe and sound I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.